Um, there's this beautiful poem that talks about the differences in motherhood and what that looks like. How some are chosen mothers and they have a lot of children. How some chose one and it was one and done. They had that one child and that was it. Uh, others want so desperately to be a mother and, and are not able to. And there's others who don't want to be a mom. There are others who have chosen foster or adoption or um, taking in neighborhood kids. I count you. You're a mom. <laughs> there's moms in church. There's moms who give you supper. I don't care what it looks like in your life. There are a lot of ways to be a mom and to embrace motherhood. So this morning, when we talk about moms and, and dads, it, I don't want us necessarily to be pigeonholed into a family of origin, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, I want us to understand, to lift up our eyes and see something bigger, um, if you will. So today we are going to talk about how we are family. And it was really something that had struck me out of Matthew, which go with me for a minute because at first it feels, feels a little rude by Jesus, but he's perfect, so it must be okay. So if you would just open up to Matthew chapter 12, and it starts in verse 46. I have a different translation, so I'm actually going to read from the screen. Um, so Matthew 12, verse 46, it says this, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Feels a little repetitive, but go with me. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he says, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. When I first read this, I was like, Jesus, did you just dog your family? <laughs> like, literally the mother who birthed you, you're like, she could wait outside for a minute. That felt a little disrespectful to me. And so as I was studying it out, trying to understand, because I like the last part of it, I wanted to just share the last part about how Jesus looks at us and he says, you're my father, you're my mother, you're my brother, you're my sister. I like that part. That makes me feel good. But I was trying to understand why he would left, leave his mom and his brothers outside. And this is what, when I was studying and pilfering through the scriptures, this is what I, I came to realize. Jesus is teaching. It's really important, actually, because it's during that three-year period where he's alive and actually doing ministry before he's set to go onto the cross. He's teaching, and his mom and his brothers are knocking at the door, trying to interrupt what he was teaching because he probably, like, didn't fold his laundry or he probably didn't clean his dishes and they were out on the couch or something like I had to do this morning, it's fine. He, they were probably interrupting for something extremely important. And they were like, Jesus, we have to talk to you about something. You got in a fight with your brother this morning. No, I'm just kidding. That probably wasn't it. But they were knocking on the door and it doesn't say that they knocked on the door because they wanted to come in. It said they knocked on the door so that Jesus would come out because they needed to talk to him. And I thought that was really interesting because he, instead of giving them this, you know, message about how I, what I'm doing is really important, he just says, hold on, this, this is important to me. These are my fathers. These are my mothers, my sisters, and my brothers. And he wasn't dogging his family of origin. He was addressing that sometimes familiarity can cloud our, our picture of what's happening. What he was saying was extremely important. He was teaching these people needed to know, not just them, but they were writing it down. That's why we even have the story to begin with. They are writing it down in scripture for us to know all of the things that he is saying. And he didn't have a moment to wait, 
to go and talk and have a conversation because this moment right here was holy. And what they were doing by knocking and trying to interrupt that unmeaning, we don't mean to, but sometimes familiarity can help us to miss things that we might not have missed. I don't know about you, but when I first got married, I had like a pack of gum by the bed because I didn't want my husband to know I had like bad breath in the morning when I woke up, like heaven forbid, right? Or heaven forbid he know that I actually use the restroom and I don't just clean it. Like it was the thing, right? And then over the years, I'm going to let you know, we don't have gum by the bed anymore because everyone's going to, we're having coffee first before we brush the teeth. Let's just say that. Insult to injury, right? (laughs) But familiarity. When we become so familiar with something, um, our own family members is something that's so intriguing to us because the word familiarity literally has the root word of family. It's so intriguing to think how familiar they've become that we almost take it for granted. And I don't know if you've ever done that. Probably not. You're probably all perfect and you have just this beautiful relationship with your families. But I can tell you, I have taken a few moments for granted. I have the same child that I prayed for when Jacob was in the NICU every single day, day in and day out, that God would heal him. It's the same child I am sending to his room because I don't want to see him right now. Just me? Okay. (laughs) Good to know I'm in good company. Familiarity. When things become familiar, even church, when church becomes familiar. When all of this becomes familiar, then sometimes we're the ones knocking at the door like, oh, is it over yet? I'm so hungry right now. Uh, I just want to point out the irony is my child stands at the front door probably to tell me that my daughter is crying. Hey, Jake, I love you. Very familiar of you. Oh, you had to turn it off because she heard my voice. All right, bye. Um, Love you, buddy. Familiarity, there's something about it. But it Jesus is moving beyond that. He's moving beyond the idea of familiarity being such a terrible thing, that family is not the root of evil, right? He's saying, essentially, that we have to look at our families with new eyes. We have to look at the situation with what God is doing. Because then he says, if he were against family, that he would put his family outside and then he would just move on. But instead, what he says is, I've established a family. I've put you in a family. You are my family. So for us, when we come together, it's not just, oh, it's so nice to see you on Sunday and I'll see you next Sunday. No, you are my family. You are my family and my family is yours. We share in this. You are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers and my fathers, and I am in it. Just as Jesus was in it, just as he's pointing out to each other, he's saying we need each other for family. For family that, yes, might become familiar, but for family. Committed, devoted, we're not going anywhere, you know? No one else can pick on you but us. We're family. And that's what Jesus says to us. And what we are to others. Now I want to, I want to address, or address, that's the wrong word for it. I want to open up to a passage that Jesus talks about what family should look like. Specifically the church family. So if you would uh, go with me to Titus. Now Titus is, is a gentleman who was like a protege of Paul, Paul the Apostle. And he spent a lot of time with Paul. He get, got to know his heart. And then Paul sent Titus off to Crete. And he was essentially telling him, I'm sending you to the most luxurious place and you're just going to love your life here. No, that's not what he said at all because he said, hey, Crete, they literally go by, um, they call people as in like derogatory names. They call them a Cretan. 
like, oh, you're just being a Cretan, because it meant that you were being a liar or a scoundrel or someone that's just completely like degraded into cultural society. So doesn't that sound exciting? Like Titus, my protege, my son, I'm going to send you to like the most desolate of places that has totally no respect for the family and be off. And it's like, okay, that's really exciting. His letter to Titus, however, if we imagine it as like a father to a son, the care that he has for him, he's instructing him with a few things when he's talking to Titus. He says, he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a little bit of a passage here, he says, as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Wholesome teaching because they were in churches, not just out and about in churches teaching false teaching. Essentially, whatever sounded good to them, that's what they were teaching. So he's instructing the church as Titus goes into it. He says, tell them to, to teach what's right, wholesome teaching. And then he says, teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. So I guess patience comes with old age. I don't know. It just says teach the old men that. So this is what he's setting up, right? This is the ideal. This is family. This is Titus talking to the old men as this is hashtag goals, right? And then he says, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. So women... Let's not teach uh, uh, each other that, you know, parenthood is so hard and I can't believe we had all these children and, you know, what were we thinking? And, or I can't believe this next generation or we should be teaching what is good, what is helpful. He says this and it's interesting because he moves beyond what Titus is teaching to what they're teaching to each other. It's like what you're teaching to me. It says, sorry, eyesight might be getting a little worse. <laughs> These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes. Okay, some translations are saying to care for their homes. This is not like a mandate for everyone to stay at home. To work their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. That's going to get me in hot water. Let me clear it up. We're going to keep going, but just hold on to that thought that you have in your head right now. The older women are teaching the younger women. This is not Titus teaching the younger women. This is not Pastor Rich teaching the church. This is the older women are teaching the younger women because you have a piece of the puzzle. Not everyone, if you think of a puzzle, we love puzzles in our house. I especially love when I'm with Jake because he always sneaks a puzzle piece and I'm like, where is this last one? Because I cannot have a puzzle without every piece. I'll throw it away. But, he knows. <laughs> but, how many of you know, sometimes you're not at the end of a puzzle looking at one piece thinking like, oh, you're the missing piece. Sometimes what you are is a piece that connects a whole group of pieces, right? You have this group and you're like, I see this group is all together, but I don't know where it fits in this giant puzzle. Sometimes you're just the missing piece to connect other people. Sometimes you're the piece that's teaching the other ones to come in, that they are allowed to come in, that you can sit next to me. That's your piece. Our piece is actually interconnectedness, that we need each other. And then it says, so it says, yes, be submissive. Yes, I understand. I understand that the text said to be submissive to your husbands. But also it continues to say, 
They will not bring shame on the word of God by doing these things. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. In the same way. So all of those things that he told the younger women to do, right? That the older women should teach the younger women. He's teaching the men to do. Paul was very specifically a teacher who believed in equality of person. He believed in women and men being equal. He believed in that time, you have to understand, there were slaves. There was no denying that it happened, and it addresses it in Scripture, and that could be really hard for us to digest because that is wrong, and we understand it to be wrong. But we also have to understand Paul's headspace when he wrote about it. He actually believed that slaves were equal, which was extremely countercultural because back then they were not. So when he's talking, he's not talking down. He's talking to their worth. He might call them a slave, but he's actually, he's saying that you have purpose too. You have a responsibility too. You're not just a second-class citizen, just like the wives. You weren't a second-class citizen. You're not just to be submissive to your husbands and he's to rule over you. In another passage in Ephesians, Paul literally says to submit to each other. So in the same way, it says to teach the younger men to live wisely. Or you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. He says, don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> if you're going to tell them to do good and to be good and to live this way, do it. Just do it. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing to say Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. If you want that passage to apply to you a little more, imagine instead of slaves, it says your name or employee or whatever the case may be. Imagine it saying, hey, guess what, employee? I want you to do the best that you can do with the job that you have, whatever it is. I want you to be a benefit to your boss. Could you imagine if your boss found out that you were a Christian and you had been awful to them? <laughs> I mean, not to say that's ever happened in my life, but I remember specifically one time I wanted so desperately to tell my boss a thing or two about all the things that I had done to justify myself. And the only thought that kept me from doing it is, Vanessa, you're a pastor, don't you dare do it. <laughs> because for some reason that, you know, I was like, that's for sure. Straight, do not go to church ever again, right? How would it look like to the world if Christians lived as God instructed us to live? Now remember in Titus, these are goals. These are intentions. These, this is the dream, right? This is what God designed and set up and wants us to live and strive for. But this is not reality of we're perfect every single day. This is just what he's praying over us to attain. It's a structure. He's setting up a structure. So he's setting up a new way to be a family with each other. Remember, they had a lot of um, thwarted ways of being family. But he's also making a countercultural example it's something completely different for them to follow for the very reason that it would be desirable to other people. God is into not just your life being better, but your life being an influence for other people to see and to say, what do you have that I don't have? What's in you that you, don't, that, that you can walk through this thing? 
What is it about you that has shifted your entire life because it's supposed to be desirable? And I think about that often because, well, because I'm a perfectionist. My therapist told me so. It's actually diagnosable. And I think about, like, I want my scones to be so desirable that people will walk all the way across the room because they see it, right? That is essentially, in a, the most ridiculous way to put it, a way that God is trying to set things up for our benefit, but also to bring others in. His entire purpose was to redeem us back to himself. Us, yes, us, but also every other image bearer that we see, because even the person that we disagree with the most and go toe-to-toe with is an image bearer of our God. And he wants them to come back. He wants them to be in the puzzle piece with us. And he might be saying, you are the missing piece that's going to bring them to the table. I love how I had to write it out because I didn't want to mess it up. But there's a book called Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And it's really beautiful because it teaches us how to not be so American-driven and seeing things only in 2022 and how things were. And Daniel Niles, who's the author, he said this. He said, the only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. What if in this room we actually needed each other and not just, oh, I need Pastor Rich to pray for me. What if I came to church and I said, I need Barb to pray for me. I just need that grandmother to just speak life over me today. What if I came to church and I said, man, Tina and Omar, I would love if you would just spend a few moments with me enjoying my kids or just keep an extra eye on the baby because she likes to eat everything. What if we stood so in need of each other, of each other, that that's how we actually built love and the family that God intended for us to have with each other, that relationship? What if it was a relationship, a family that needed each other? I'm a strong, independent woman. That's hard for me to say that I need someone else. I will just be very honest and say that's also not scriptural and it's not something that I... uh, encourage. It's something I'm working on because in fact, we do need other people. I am not the and all and the be all. I should have called somebody to help me with those homemade treats outside, but it was the last minute and I didn't want to be a bother. That is not something to strive for, to overfunction and to work myself into an early grave. It is my saying, I missed the mark and I didn't let anyone else help me. I didn't say that I was in need. Father, forgive me, a sinner, me. So I think about this. Are we desirable to other people? Are we, is our family relationship, is uh, the God that we serve, our attitude, are we becoming more and more like Christ? Are we exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? Are we gentle and kind and loving and patient? (laughs) Are we patient? I don't know, I'm going to ask the old man because it said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't call it like that the older men, (laughs) it says in scripture about patience because it says that they have it. So I'm going to start asking. If we're not, right, if we're not at this desirable mark where everyone's coming flooding into the church because it just looks so beautiful, then why not? Now, Lord kept reminding me of these three things. Some of us may be on the outside looking in. Some of us aren't joining the family, right? We're not so interconnected and loving each other because we are on the outside looking in, homebodies and hermits. (laughs) What does that mean? I could figure Jesus out on my own. I don't need church for that. 
oh, I don't need, it's just me and Jesus. Jesus is all I need. You're right. He is all you need. But also in the beginning of scripture, when it said that God created man and he said it was not good because he was alone, do you know he didn't create the woman next? He actually created animals. Because if he was just creating a soulmate or a marriage union, if that was the, the solve of being lonely, he would have created the woman next. Do you know that that actually kicked me on my butt when I first read it? Because I was like, wait, why did you create an animal when he, you said that they were alone? They're therapeutic. I can give you that. Until they go to the bathroom and you have to clean it up. Not so therapeutic for Vanessa. I will just say that right now. But there's something incredibly important about people, about needing people, about not staying at home and shutting yourself in and saying, this is all I need. No, it's not. That's a lie that we tell ourselves. No, it's not. And it's not scriptural either. Because in James, it says this. In James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it says, is anyone, oh, I should just read that one. I'm sorry. I got my Bible that has all the translations that you're reading is at home, and now I just have a Bible for prop. That's terrible. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So, if we only needed ourselves, if we were it, the end all, the be all, if it was just me and Jesus, why would he tell me to go and ask for people to pray for me? Why would he tell me that I would be whole and healed when someone prayed for me and not when he answered my prayer? Why would he say, if you're hurting, if you're suffering with whatever that looks like, then call to people, then pray people, call people. I love now, like now we can actually call people and that means something different because before it had to be like you literally taking yourself and like bringing it to someone and uttering the words. Now we can actually just text them. We, he's made it so easy for us in 2022. Like I'm struggling, but I can't say it out loud and I can't look you face to face. So I'm just gonna write it in this little text message here. He has made it so easy for us to connect with each other. That's a whole other subject about how personal connection is actually more beneficial. But, but he's made it so easy for us, but we are homebodies and hermits some days. We will show, like it says in the beginning of that text, if I'm happy, sing praises. We're so eager to come together and to celebrate, to celebrate with those who celebrate and to mourn with those who mourn. But we have a really hard time saying I'm suffering because it means that we are currently suffering. We are currently going through something. And that means that I'm not perfect and I don't have it together and I need you to jump into my situation and pray because that's going to give me some results, I guess. And I'm going to be whole and healed, I guess, because I need somebody else to know my business. Just me? Okay, good. Good to know. So sometimes we're on the outside looking in, acting as though we're homebodies and hermits. It's a self-preservation tactic. I get it. But also sometimes, number two, we're looking to the wrong influences for our help and our healing. I think of this when, when we're reading Titus. 
because he's talking about the ideal for our maturing in the faith. He's telling us what the structurally it should do, right? That this is how we're going to mature in the faith. This is how we need each other. But sometimes we're in need and we take that need and we go to the wrong people for it. <laughs> I'm probably the only person that Googles or Wikipedias every time I have something wrong, right? And it's told that I'm dying in four days. I'm like, I have to get to a doctor. I'm dying for sure. Or you have something that you're, you know, going through and you take it to work and you're like telling Joe Schmo in the lunchroom that has no idea who you are all about it. Or actually my most favorite, when I visit a hair salon and I hear the person in the chair next to me and they're yitta, yitta, yitta about their whole life and I'm like, I know so much about you and I just got to see you for like an hour. I'm sure that happens to no one else. <laughs> no familiarity means I don't know why it is that we try and keep the things from those we know most but we can tell a complete stranger about our entire suffering life sometimes we're looking to the wrong influence let's look at that text again by James James said this I'm gonna read the entire thing again are any of you suffering hardships you should pray are any of you happy sing praises are any of you sick call for the elders of the church Call for the elders of the church. <laughs> One more time. Let's call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you. Anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sin, you'll be forgiven. Confess your sin to each other, not to be shamed, not so they know your business. And pray, a pr and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person, a righteous person, not your hairdresser, has great power and produces wonderful results. Friends, sometimes that thing that you're really deeply struggling with, somebody else actually has a part in your healing. And I know that's messy. I know we don't like that. I know that sometimes when we feel most fragile or we're going through something, I don't want to run to you and tell you my business because that feels vulnerable. But it says that it actually produces results in our life if we bring it and give it to someone. I remember when I was in ministry, uh, actually before ministry, I remember when I was in Bible school, that's the one, and I sat down with a friend at lunch, and she's just thinking it's like any other normal day, and she's like going through the menu and like, oh, what am I going to eat today? And I'm sitting on the other side, haven't even looked at my menu, and I just start crying in the middle of a strings Italian restaurant in Roseville, California. And she like slowly puts down her menu like, Vanessa, do you need to talk about something? And I did. I did need to talk about something. Because for me personally, I was making some choices that I didn't think honored the Lord, but I didn't think it was full-blown sin, but I was struggling because I was under so much shame, so much shame. And I just kept holding it inside because Heaven forbid somebody know, because I'm in Bible school, that I am making some choices right now. And I just kept getting beat over the head time and time again, feeling like an imposter with everyone else because they're looking like, oh, Vanessa, she's dating Pastor Rich. They are going to get married and go into ministry. And like, how beautiful is this life that they have? And I'm sitting on the other side. I can't even eat anymore because I'm crying. I don't have an appetite. I don't care which is not like me. I will go dessert first at Strings Italian Restaurant. I'll tell you that right now. But sometimes we're not desirable because we carry all of it on the inside. How can we be accountable? How can we grow if no one knows the true us? 
How can we ever feel genuine if you don't know that I'm a perfectionist that actually hates that I overfunction? And when I look at those homemade treats, I'm so happy because I wanted you to have something special on Mother's Day. It's like the mother heart of me that just wants to nurture and love on you, but that hates that I couldn't ask for help. Why do we do that? I don't know. I've gotten, I've gotten a little better because I asked some of y'all to help with my children this week, so I mean, come on. <laughs> or this last one. Are we looking to imperfect people to be more than human? Imperfect people to be more than human. Let's look at that text in James one last time. It says this. Are any of you suffering hardships? Pray. Are any of you happy? Sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other to pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person. Availeth much, it says, and it's hard to not have that one memorized, but has great power and produces wonderful results. That person is doing nothing other than having great faith and being right standing and being an intercessor with you. They're a middleman. They're, they're a middleman who honors God and loves God and says, I will stand with you in this, but they are not the ones solving your problems. They are not the ones that are having results. They are just a middle person connecting your hand to God's. And it says, in the name of the Lord, in God's name, he will heal you. Unfortunately, us as the middle people are connecting pieces, right? We are imperfect. I can't tell you how many times that I have been at a church and I was so excited, right? We get there and it's just like starry eyes, like everyone is perfect. Everyone walks on water and I want to be just like them, only for things to get familiar. Familiar. And then for me to look around and be like, I can't believe these people. How do they even go to church? Why is that pastor even preaching? which I'll tell you a secret is really fun when you're married to the pastor and you just take turns speaking because we're obviously perfect. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But if I am looking to the middle person to be the one to make me well, I have gotten it wrong. That's not how God intended this to be. My name is Vanessa Shepard. <laughs> I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> It actually hurts my head most days. It's a real thing. I also tend to yell a lot at my children behind closed doors. Amen. I shouldn't say a lot. I'm working on it. I need forgiveness. One of my favorite prayers is the Jesus prayer. It simply goes, Jesus Christ, my Savior, forgive me, a sinner. We are all sinners all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Romans says. That's what Paul says. So there's no one that's better than us. But we go to a righteous person, an elder person, so that they can be the connecting force because they have honored God. They've submitted themselves to him. We go to them to connect us to God for our wholeness and our healing. We need each other. We do, in fact, need each other. Isolation and loneliness are killers every time. And they're not of God's will. So I would like to end. I would like to end this way. I don't know where you're at. 
I don't know if you feel disconnected from the family of God. Something has happened. An imperfect person has, has hurt you. I don't know if it's just that you were looking to the wrong people, wrong influences. Or I don't know if it's just safer for you to just be at home and disconnected, to be a little disingenuous and present yourselves as having it all together, and it's hard for you to be anything but. But I want to say, welcome to the family. We put the fun in dysfunction. I'm just kidding. I read that on a card once, and I was like, what does that even mean? Who do you give that card to? (laughs) But we're family. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Omar. We are family. It means we're a bunch of goobers and goofballs and we know each other's stuff and we love each other because we stand in need of each other because you are my family. And I don't go anywhere when you're family. Yes, I'm close enough to smell your bad breath in the morning. Join my club. I had coffee. But man, I love you. God loves you. When he looked at his disciples, he knew that one would betray him. He knew that one would deny him. He knew that others would completely fall off the face of the earth. And what does he say? You're my brothers and you're my sisters. You're my mothers. You're my fathers. You are welcome here. You are not just welcome to be my friend. You're welcome to be my family. Happy Mother's Day to all of the moms that have mothered me, the young and the old. Er, I don't know what's polite to say. I apologize. I'll figure it out soon enough. I'm getting there. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. We're family. And I count it an honor to be your family. Let's close it out with the last couple of verses that Paul wrote to Titus about setting up the family of God. He says this in Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in the evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus. I know it was just Easter and we just had Easter weekend, but it is always about Jesus. It's always about the cross and us being redeemed. It's always about us, the sinners, getting to come to him and saying, I messed up with a repentive heart and him telling us, I forgive you. Yeah, I did that on the cross. I forgive you. It's that word that you need when you feel like an utter failure and the most vulnerable that you could possibly be crawling to the feet of Jesus just to hear him say, I love you. Lift up your head. I forgave you. I don't know what life has been like for you. I don't know what kind of suffering you've endured, and I'm sorry for it. I hate suffering. We've endured, we've endured some. So I get it. But I love also in Titus, when he's talking about our faith being desirable to other people, he's not just talking about the here and now. 
He's reminding them of the hope, the future hope that they have coming. He's saying, yes, it's going to be a little messy here. But then, in verses 11 through 14, what does he say? That there's a hope and a wonderful thing coming because of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Eyes on Jesus. Every morning, eyes on Jesus. I know this is happening, or I know this happened. Eyes on Jesus. So I would, I would like to pray over you. Then I know Pastor Rich is going to come up and close us out. But there's two people in this room, and I feel like all of us might be number one, but there might be a few at number two. Number one is, as my child hyenically laughs in the background, you're welcome, that was for me. <laughs> the first one is, your relationship with the family of God might be a little skewed. You might not feel like you can sit with us, that you are a part of us, that you are family, that you are loved. You might be on the outside or on the inside being a completely different person than you know yourself to be. May I invite you to bring your genuine whole self, whole sinning self, to the table? Can I pray for you to feel at peace with his family? Can I pray peace over you? And in the second call, which I'm not asking for hands. I don't know if you picked up on that. It's a personal thing. I don't know if you felt church is, uh, it's too much for you. This whole God thing, I don't know about this. I don't know about God. I don't know how, if he's real. I don't know what Titus was talking about when he was talking about a future glory. Life just is terrible. And then you die. <laughs> I've heard that before too. It's probably on another card. Can I just, can I pray over you that he would make himself real? That this book is not just instructions for us today, but it's actually historically proven to be uh, correct, that it's never been proven wrong, that these are actual things that happened actually for us, that God himself is real and true, that we do have a future hope. Can I pray that over you? And if you're questioning it, I'm just gonna ask that you Give it a chance. Give it a chance to be family. God, I thank you for my friends this morning. I thank you that you see us. You designed us. You gave us your image. You created us with the most creative thing that you could do. It says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Father, I thank you for each of us, no matter our relationship with ourselves, and if we can believe those words, I pray that we can hear them coming from you. I pray that we can have a relationship with our Father God as somebody who loves us and cherishes us and created us and is not ashamed and is not uh, condemning towards us. God, while he instructs to convict and to lead us closer through the Spirit, God, I thank you that our relationship with you is not out of fear. A healthy fear of the God is a respectful one, one that acknowledges you are King and Savior. God, it is not a fear that is terrified. I pray that we're not terrified by you. God, and where we need peace with our relationship with you or where we need peace with the church and the family that you've given us, God, I pray that the spirit would be so strong and powerful, powerful on our behalf, that you would connect us back to the family, back to the greater puzzle piece. 
God, and I also want to lift up those in here who might be questioning faith, who might be questioning God. When it talks about a future glory, something after death that gets to happen for only those who say that they confess in the name of the Lord. God, I pray that those questions wouldn't keep them on the outside, but they would sit with you and ask them. God, I pray that they would understand that they can sit. It's not something that can't be questioned. They could sit and say, are you real? Why did you allow this to happen? You're not too fragile for our big questions. Father, I thank you that those that are questioning would also find their place. A friend, a mentor, somebody who could pull them at the table so they could ask them amongst family. Father, we thank you for it. We give this day to you. We thank you for your instructions and encouragement to us. We give you all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.